You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And my topic and guests today are are very timely with the 2024 presidential race already kind of beginning here uh, across the river in Iowa. And with the topic of freedom very much out front in a lot of our discourse these days regarding issues like abortion, gun rights, and what we can say and what we can see. Uh, here to discuss this is somebody with a unique perspective, uh, somebody I, I know, a, a friend, uh, and worked with at one time in my career. He's Adrian Moore, the vice president of the Reason Foundation. I think many of you have probably heard of Reason. It's a it's a think tank advocating free minds and free markets. Adrian's based in Florida, and he served 10 years in the United States Army as well. Adrian, thanks for taking the time to be on today. Thanks, Robin. It's great to be on, and great to see you again. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, instantly when when the topic of freedom comes up, which it does so much right now, uh, I was reading a piece in in the Economist on the topic of freedom and how both parties define dif- freedom differently, and but then they're very inconsistent with it. Uh, that's not something reason gets accused of very often. How how do how do you, does your organization uh, approach the topic of freedom these days? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting framing of the question, because I agree that it seems like a little bit of a moving target these days. Right. And, uh, you know, even I I think even within some organizations and individuals, it's a, it, it, it can be pretty fluid. But um, from from reasons perspective, I think, uh, you know, free minds and free markets is is what we have attempted to use to kind of encapsulate that that notion uh that you know freedom should be the freedom to do whatever you want that doesn't hurt anyone else uh and that you know that means you should be able to buy and sell whatever you want that doesn't hurt anyone else you should be able to think and say whatever you want that doesn't hurt anyone else and and it all flows from that Okay. What what I what I admire is whether people agree or not, you're consistent uh, up and down the line, and you defy partisan definition, which is kind of nice these days. Uh, everything's so <laughs> partisan, and you guys kind of defy that, which is nice. Um, I want to the first topic I want to talk to you about is schools because it's a very big issue in Iowa, and you can just imagine, Adrian, you know, living here uh, on the river where we have. Uh, a deep what used to be a purple state is now a deep red state in Iowa, but a deep blue state in Illinois, and they're doing things the exact opposite. It's quite an experiment here, but Iowa's been at the forefront of doing some uh, different types of things with schools. They just passed uh, some some legislation uh, on choice. Um, what are you seeing nationwide? I know this is an issue dear to reason. Uh, what are you seeing nationwide? And most importantly, what's driving this move uh, to provide alternatives to public schools? I think in terms of what's going on around the country, there's definitely more conversations uh, about choice. And and I'm definitely going to use that term very broadly, because 
I think a lot of times when the term school choice is used, it's used very narrowly to describe like maybe a classic uh, voucher program uh, where some number of students within a, a state or a district are able to use a voucher, you know, win a lottery to get a voucher to go to a, a different school than their residentially assigned, you know, neighborhood school. Um, but it's actually become much more diverse and, and sort of sophisticated than that, which ties into sort of what I think is driving it, where uh, a lot of what's going on now is, is, is things like um, what's called open enrollment, which is uh, opening, uh, changing the way that school assignments or, or school signups work so that it, you might just call it public school choice. So you are not required to send your children and your children are not required to attend the nearest school to your house, what's generally called the residentially assigned school, but rather uh, you can choose among the public schools in your region. And, uh, you know, that obviously, you know, creates some challenges transporting, you know, transporting kids and, and obviously schools tend to get chosen based on performance. Uh, but that sort of creates some competitive pressures, which I think has always been the, the maybe the main virtue of what we conventionally think of as school choice is the idea is, you know, not it's the goal is not per se to sort of eliminate public schools or anything like that. It's to create options. So everybody should be able to choose the school that they want their kids to go to. And the flip side of that is, therefore, schools should be able to compete for those kids, which is a different paradigm, you know, to just impose choice that allows the parents and the kids to choose, but not allow the schools to do anything differently in order to compete to win those parents' choice and those kids' choice is is crazy. But a lot of, you know, a lot of school choice programs kind of have done that. And I think uh, one of the things we focused on over the years is how do you how do you uh, structure things so that the public schools are able to compete so that they can manage things in a, in a way to improve their performance uh, and, and compete for those kids. Um, and a large part of that is, is, is working at the state level on funding formulas, because the way that the states fund schools is highly micromanaged and highly complex. Oh my gosh, if you saw a flow chart, of the funding formula in your state, you would be amazed at, at how complicated it is. And trying to simplify and 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 make more flexible those funding formulas so that there is room for school districts and schools to change and adopt because the pandemic changed everything. You know, you ask what the driver is. Well, for a while schools were closed and people had to do other things. And there's nothing to make you appreciate options like exercising an option you know it's like when you when you have a choice that you didn't have before you don't like to lose that choice you want to continue to have that option most people wanted to send their kids back to to public schools but that, that doesn't mean they don't want to have more the way they do and it doesn't mean that many of them don't want to continue to choose where their kids go to school the way they were able to during the pandemic so all these things kind of work together to make the complicated landscape we've got going right now
Now, one of the arguments in Iowa uh, among uh, Democrats, but also some Republicans, was uh, choice in theory is 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 great in places where there are choices, uh, but in rural areas, uh, which Iowa is mostly rural, of course, Illinois is uh, well, there was rural areas in every state. Um, there, there may not be opportunities right. to choose. What what have you seen across the country? Are there? Uh, I'm sure that I know there's a lot of programs going on. Have they been able to uh, meet those concerns? Yeah, that is actually I think one of the most exciting and interesting uh, areas um, and questions in kind of a school choice broadly defined right now, which is you've got rural areas all over the country where there's. If you're you're lucky, if there's two schools that are even within a drivable distance in many places, there's really only one school that's geographically uh, realistic. There's no private school. You know, what what are you supposed to do with this choice program? Um, and and, you know, traditionally, kind of the answer has been, well, these programs just weren't designed for those areas. They were designed for more urban areas. Uh, but um, uh, but that then removes that option of of choice and competition sort of helping these schools to find new ways to improve their performance. So the pandemic kind of opened the door on that too, because what you had was changes in the rules that allowed um, not just homeschooling, which I think kind of everybody had in their mind, you know, when it, what was going on in rural areas when, when all this happened, but what we call micro schools or micro schooling or whatever. What if, you know, if you're in a rural area like that and you have the you now control how the money that's going to pay for your kid education, you you can decide where to spend that money. You can pull together with 10 other families or or whatever, hire a tutor. And now you've got a 10 family school, a little micro school. It can all take place at one person's house who happens to have the uh you know the the large den or the the guest room or someplace where uh, 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 you know or or some club facility or something where these kids can get together with the tutor. Uh, lots of different options for structuring that. You know, you could see, you know, you go among Catholic families, you could have just a two or three families pool together because uh, you know they had, they didn't have more kids and you know lots of lots of options. And what you see is a lot of experimentation in that space with different ways of structuring this, um, sharing teachers, you know, multiple micro schools, uh, maybe having like a, a, a core teacher, but then maybe sharing a contract with a, a science teacher who has some specialized, you know, ability to come in and do science classes and things like that and moves among the different students week to week and things like that. So lots of interesting stuff going in that. And that's really the rural answer is we don't have to think of a big giant brick and mortar building packed with a hundred kids in order to call it a school. Part of this revolution is rethinking what school is, but that also puts the same kind of uh, pressures uh, that you have with homeschooling, which is, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you enter into arrangements or, or, um, you know, clubs or groups so that kids you know, have lots of social activity, can still do sports and be in plays and, you know, do those things that you kind of need more kids to, to really make work. You can't just do with a, a handful of kids. So it's a very innovative, uh, very innovative area. 
You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. My guest today is Adrienne Moore, who's the vice president of the Reason Foundation. Um, we've been talking a little bit about the idea of freedom and what it means. Uh, his organization, Reason, Reason is de dedicated to free markets, uh, free ideas, freedom. Uh, we talked a little bit about how both parties talk about freedom in different ways uh, and how Reason is different in that end and that they're a lot more consistent. We've talked about one issue here where you would align on school choice more with the traditional Republican position. I want to talk about another issue where this is what I like about you guys. You would align a little more with the traditional left, the Democrats, and that's on marijuana decriminalization. Um, how's that going? Now, Illinois de uh, decriminalized it. Uh, you, they've got um, the, these legal places sprouting up. It looks like they're making some money. Uh, is has everything worked out on this? What's what's your take on how this is going? Uh, um, it's 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 definitely been a, a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, the you know broadly it's going you know pretty steadily. I think we expect and will continue to expect each year more states. Uh, in some form, decriminalize or legalize uh, uh, market um, uh, uh, sales and and distribution of of cannabis products to adults, and 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 this year, you know, is is right on track with that. Where I think we'll see probably at least two or three states um, uh, make that move this year. the The big challenge really has been, you know, even if you go you go back to the very first states to to make this transition, California and uh, uh, Colorado, for example, um, you know, it's really rubbing into, I think, two big frictions. You know, one is that the, the original, the, the reason why public opinion on marijuana changed so much and why legalization has really happened is kind of more and more people recognizing, uh, uh, the way I put it is, there are a lot of people who actually use drugs responsibly and more and more people eventually realize that they know someone fairly well who turns out to be a marijuana user, but has a career is successful, is a good parent as you know, uh, is a good member of the community. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If, how can that be? I thought, you know, once you smoke marijuana, you lived on the street, you know, so people's perceptions uh, about the reality uh, of, of marijuana use really changed. And also I think a widespread recognition that the war on drugs just completely failed to succeed in, in any metric that you could come up with. So, uh, so that gave people sort of a craving for a change and that maybe the way to deal with the, the social problems and the personal problems of drug abuse is not to ban it and create black markets, but to directly sort of apply harm reduction approaches uh, to dealing with that. So states have, have, have worked on that, but when you legalize something that was illegal and, and for which there was a substantial black market, the challenge you have is how do you transition that market from the black market to you know, the legal market? And unfortunately, this is where most states, including Illinois, have uh, struggled, let's just say. <laughs> I could use harsher words, but um, uh, 
because you know what? You know who's really bad at designing markets? Legislators. Legislators, I, I'll say it wouldn't know a market if it bit them on the keister, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, that's not their forte. Um, so, so legislation and ballot measures uh, uh, that have tried to create these market rules have been based on a fundamental, a lot of fundamental misunderstandings about how markets work. So, you know, the regulatory structures tends to be all wrong. Tax structures are all wrong. And so straight struggles. So you look at a place like California, where it's been legal for many, many years, there's still a huge black market because the taxes are so high and the regulations are so high that it's actually cheaper to buy, to sell it and buy it in the black market. Um, you don't have that problem at nearly as much in a place like Colorado, which started off with a lot of California's problems, but has made a lot of changes over the years. Or a place like Michigan, which now Michigan only legalized two years ago, but they started with a very good framework that encouraged the private market to succeed and crowd out the black market. And, and it has done so largely. Um, so... You know, I think that's the struggle that states face is how can we learn from these uh, good examples and learn the lessons of places like California that have struggled and, and the journey that Colorado has been on. And I think Illinois is going to go through this. Um, their market's overtaxed and overregulated, and they're going to have to make some changes if they want this to work. Another issue that's really been uh, cropping up more and more, it, it was uh, talked about a lot in the 2020 race when I had uh, presidential candidates on, but that is this issue of monopoly. Uh, a lot of people feel uh, that different sectors of our economy are held a stranglehold by just a few firms. Uh, in Iowa, big ag uh, is accused of uh, uh, unfairness uh, in, in, uh, in the marketplace. Uh, you know, everybody talks about Facebook and Google. Uh, this is an issue, you know, we've talked about one issue here where reasons lined up on the on the right, one where they're lined up on the left. This issue, both parties seem to be coming around, members of both parties, uh, on this antitrust issue. This is an interesting one. Uh, where, do you, where, where do you come down on this as far as, uh, uh, do you think the big, these big companies are providing enough uh, services to to be to have it be a quote free market or, or they need broken up to a lot more smaller firms uh, to participate in the market. Yeah, I think I think the starting point for thinking about we we often use the word monopoly. Uh, I kind of abuse the word monopoly. I should say a lot of a lot of talk about monopoly or market power is looking at companies that are just very large. And they're not, in fact, a monopoly because a monopoly is, you know, you le legally no one else can sell. <laughs> um, and and a very large company is legally other people can sell, but the vast majority of the market is controlled by one company or a couple companies. And that can be a, a real issue. And the central question always is, is that due to some failing in the market where where for whatever reason, technology or or just people's preferences uh this one company has managed to control the vast majority of the market and there's no way for that to change uh and therefore the the government needs to step in and sort of solve this market failure uh or is this you know a a, a, a more a more of a natural outcome 
uh, that will change over time. And when you look at the history of market power, two things jump out. First of all, it's very, 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 very rare for a company to achieve real substantial market power strictly within the market. There is almost always government intervention. In other words, they lobby the government to create rules that favor them and discourage their competitors. And if you didn't have those favorable rules, they wouldn't control so much of the market. So you don't need to go in and break up the company. You need to remove the crony rules that that their buddies in Congress put in place, right? Um, so asking Congress to solve the problem of Congress favoritism towards certain parties is a little bit of chasing your own tail, I would say. So I'm not sure that's 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 going to be the winning the winning solution. Um, and and the other thing is is that we have to accept that it takes time for markets to solve problems, and you can't just say one day oh, this company's become very large, we have to immediately step in and do something. You have to give the market a chance to uh, for competitors to emerge because most of the time, barring government interference that restricts competitors, they do. And we can see that all over, for example, the technology sector these days where the, there's no company that is currently considered too big that isn't actually starting right now this year losing out to competitors. So, you know, your your Googles, your Twitters, your uh, Amazons are all facing more competition than ever. And they've all struggled with their stock prices, right? And, and so it's happening. It's happening right in front of us. We're seeing the market work. We're seeing competitors. We had uh, 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 Congressman Hunter, who's been very vocal on this, actually go on, uh, I believe it was MSNBC and talk about, you know, the problem of, he refuses to use Google uh, because it's too big. It's a monopoly. And he believes the government needs to break it up, but he doesn't use Google because he uses one of their competitors. So it, he's literally saying there's a competitor and that's what I use, but they don't have any competitors. So we have to really, well, wait, which one is it congressman? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so I think, you know, that that kind of uh, confusion, I think, is is prevalent. Uh, it, I believe me, in a couple of years, all the, the competitive landscape you know, for all three of those companies, that's name is going to be really different. And it's not going to be caused by effective government intervention. It's going to be caused by changes in the market driven by consumers who don't like Elon Musk and are leaving Twitter. Uh, uh, you know, are tired of getting the same results from Google every time and, and trying a Google competitor, you know, or uh, have found that there's lots of other marketplaces to shop online than Amazon. But Amazon's really good. I think a lot of people are very satisfied with Amazon. It's going to remain a big success. Google is very good. A lot of people are very satisfied with Google's services. That's why they're so big and they're not going to leave. So, you know, these the competition is at the margins. It's not, you know, massive head-to-head -head competition in the real world. I plead guilty to using Amazon a lot. Uh, it, it's it's <laughs> oh, very me too, man. I know. <laughs> I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and it's it's uh it's hard to create competition here at a store. I'd love to have a little bookstore, and uh, right. but uh, so your prescription is Congress, presidential candidates, take a deep breath, wait a little bit before doing something. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, we have, let's see, we've got about 
two or three minutes left. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here uh, and shift gears a little. I've got to ask you a political question. Being from Florida, uh, I'm gonna ask you about your governor, Ron DeSantis. He is really getting a lot of interest uh, up here, nationwide and in our region. I don't think he's been to Iowa yet, but to talk scuttlebutt is he's coming up uh, as a as somebody. Uh, who's, you know, more libertarian in their thinking, uh, more devoted to freedom across the board. How do you rate DeSantis's performance in governor in two or three minutes? <laughs> um, you know, that's that's a bit of a complicated one. He's, you know, like I like most politicians on an either party, there's very few that I would say are wholly awesome or wholly terrible. Uh, most are a mixed bag, uh, and and Ron DeSantis is, is no exception. Um, you know, there was, I you know, I wouldn't give him a perfect score on his response to the pandemic, but um, you know, he did figure out that there were uh, that a lot of you know sort of lockdown policies were not very effective, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, was was quick to sort of act on that, you know, and and to recognize that the costs and benefits weren't making sense, uh, and that turned out very much, you know, a vindicated decision. Um, you know, he has been he's a good financial fiscal manager, I should say, of the state. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, you know, he he is once he decided to run for president, he uh, he needs to get attention nationwide. He needs people in you know, places like Iowa and Illinois to know who he is. So I think he's choosing to actually sort of use government power to intervene in a lot of social issues uh, where the government has no business, uh, but where it gets lots of headlines. <laughs> and I don't think that's good for the state of Florida. I, he's, he's having enormous number of his policies overturned by the courts. He kind of doesn't care because the point is to make the headlines not for the law to actually remain in place. And so it's a little frustrating for the state of Florida that we're, we're you know, our, our state laws are blowing in the winds of a political campaign for presidency, but that's sort of the way the cookie crumbles too. So, right. you know, he's done, he's done some very good policies and maybe some that I would disagree with, but, you know, he's, it's, we'll see where it all shakes out. Well, who's the real Ron DeSantis? You never know, right? When politicians run for president, they put on a persona, right? And right. so if he wins, we'll find out who he really is. Or maybe if he loses and he goes into some other uh, role, we'll find out who he really is. But for right now, he's a presidential candidate, by gosh, and that's what we're going to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, we shall see. We barely scratched the surface here. We're out of time. Uh, I wanted to talk about transportation issues. I wanted to talk about oh. criminal justice. Uh, you've got some interesting views on all these infrastructure uh, digital apps. We'll get to it again. I'll have you back and we'll get to these and maybe we'll take, get your, uh, take on, um, on the, the political season as it takes, uh, takes place too up here in Iowa. Uh, Adrian Moore has been our guest today on Heartland Politics. He's the vice president of the Reason Foundation. Very interesting conversation. Re uh, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Robin. It's great. It's great.
You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.